Hello, welcome to Remember the Film. The podcast is not set so much as a single toe in that ocean, and I love the ocean. Uh, I'm your host, Josh Bradley, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the man who said, fuck fish, Jeff Grizz Ulrich. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Josh, how are you? He hates I'm them. doing pretty good, he man. He hates fish. Like, he, he's always talking about what, how much he hates he fish. Renounces I, fish. I, I renounce fish. Yeah. He renounces Every fish. Every time we're, we're not recording, it's just fish talk for some reason. It's weird. Yeah, I got a big and the other guy up bring up that. fish talk. <laughs> the other guy bring up fish talk is Hugo Panay. What's up, Hugo? Hello. I'm, I'm, I'm in the UK now because uh, I'm on an exchange, so I'm still trying, trying to get my bearings. But, you know, but the podcast is going on, which is great. But you are, you are adapting I am adapting. I am, I am yes. adapting to my new In the Darwinian sense. Yes. A <laughs> comedy. And today, today we are talking about uh, the movie adaptation, which is why I'm making adapting pun. Not really, even really a pun. Just using just the word using as the it word. exists. It's, it's not a pun at all. Um, no, yeah, it's just yeah. Yeah, we're talking about adaptation. Uh, the I mean, Spike Jones made it, but I, I called it a Charlie Kaufman movie, even though he did not direct it. Is a Charlie Kaufman script. Spike Jones directed. Um, and I'm super excited to talk about it, but before we do that, we got to get through, uh, our first segment, which is where we talk about what we've been watching this week. And I want to ask Grizz, Grizz, what have you been watching this week, bro? Well, I did my homework and I did watch Being John Malkovich. So I have finally seen that beginning to end. Uh, I also watched, uh, I don't know if this was before the last time or, or I think since the last time we we were together, I watched Bell, the new Mamoru Mm. Hosada film. I think you, I think you mentioned about that last, last week. Yeah, I can't yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you did. Still, still fun. Good music. Uh, and then the other thing I watched was Tick, Tick, Boom. Mm-hmm. Which Me too. I, uh, I did see that you watched that uh, this week as well, Josh. So I, I'd be interested mm-hmm. to hear your, your thoughts on that. I enjoyed it, but I was not absolutely sent by it like many other people I know were. And the other thing I watched this week was Injustice, the DC animated movie based loosely on the video game. <laughs> And nice. it was what's what's the deal with, what's the deal with injustice? The uh, the setup is that the the Joker tricks Superman into killing Lois and his unborn baby, uh, and then he twisted get, gets a little grumpy about it, and he punches a hole through the Joker. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's graphically violent. <laughs> That's awesome. And then uh, and then things kind of go off the rails because now Superman, you know. Because they were so on the rails before they, you know. <laughs> but Superman kind of comes to the conclusion that you know he has the power to stop all violence in the world if by by threatening violence because he's Superman and uh, you know things proceed. It gets a little weird. That I, sounds cool. It, it's cool, but no, I like the story. Cool. I like the story better in the video game. I they mm-hmm. changed it up for the the movie, and I think they did that just because the you know what the, there would have been no point in making this movie if they didn't try to do it a little differently. Than the the story from the video game because the video game is not that long. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So so it's not even based on like a comic book storyline, right? It's like correct. The storyline was made for the video game the video first, game. and then they made a comic mm. adaptation of the video game, and now they've mm. made a movie adaptation. Uh, that's as interesting. Well. Yeah, it was it was cool. It should be the other way around. Yeah, but that's what I watched. A lot of adaptation going on. Am I right? <laughs> puns not really though uh hugo what'd you watch this week well i watched the park chan wook uh vampire thriller thirst 
which cool. I am uh, going to be talking about with Christian on, on Large Popcorn coming out soon. And Shout out to Christian in front of the show in the Twitch stream right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or at least he was. Uh, is he yeah, still there? Thirst lurking. is <laughs> okay. one of the... It's, you know, by the director of Old Boy and the Vengeance trilogy and, and The yeah. Handmaiden. And it's about a priest, a Catholic priest from Korea that goes to oh, Africa. Always a great start. To, yeah, that goes <laughs> to Africa to do some weird Honestly, experiments though. and becomes a vampire. And yeah, it's... Classic yeah. priests, man. Classic, yeah, classic <laughs> priests. Um, it's one of the weirder movies I've ever seen, but in, in a good way. I think it's a, it's very interesting. You know, imagine what the director of Old Boy would do with Twilight, and you get this movie, pretty much. It's okay. crazy. Um, so, yeah. I, uh, I also watched... Yeah, I also watched uh, the movie Ready or Not. A uh, little... Yeah, like, yeah, like horror, not really horror, kind of horror, thriller, comedy movie uh, for a couple of years ago, I think. Um, same directors as the new Scream movie. Right. Uh, which I is just why I watched that, it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, really fun movie. I mean, there's there's some stuff at the end that I was like, that kind of took me out of it. But like overall, uh, I had a really good time. It's like a quick hour and 40 minutes. And if you want to just put on something that's gory and fun, you, I think you'll have a great time with that. Yeah, I, I missed that when that? it came out, but like people, people seem to really like that. Um, it's fun. I should, yeah. I should check, get to that at some point. Yeah, it's not like I don't know. I didn't think it was incredible, but I, I thought I thought it was really fun. Is um, it, it's a really cool premise. Is it decidedly yeah. more thriller than horror? It's very violent, but I wouldn't say it's scary at all. Like, okay. There's no, the, the, I mean, yeah, it's 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 pretty much if you can handle scream, scream has I think scream has more scary moments than this. Okay. Well, this then I can definitely violent, handle but, this. <laughs> yeah, this is fine. Like, it's not, you know. Then I also watched, just today, for some reason, I decided to uh, destroy my own brain by watching Synecdoche. How do you even say this word? New York. Synecdoche. Synecdoche, New York, which is the directorial debut by Charlie Kaufman, right? Um, it is, yes. And I think. I'm glad that I did watch it because in some ways it made me appreciate adaptation even more, even though I really enjoyed adaptation. Spoilers for the discussion. Um, and and I think it's a good point of comparison to Charlie Kaufman's work when it's just writing and Charlie Kaufman's work when he's just free to do everything. And so when he's directing the movie, I think it's a very interesting uh, juxtaposition. Um, Synecdoche itself, a, a movie that I found... At the set, I think it's a masterpiece, but it's also a, a disaster. Like it's the both at the same time, and it's very hard to reconciliate how I feel about it because it's, I think it's genius, and I also think if it had a little more restraint, it could be one of my favorite movies. But for some reason, it isn't. Like I still like it, it's still like a four star movie for me. I think it's I think it's genuinely brilliant in so many ways. But it's also a little frustrating to get through. I don't. Know, I'm uh, sure you've seen it, Josh. But I don't know if you future future film to remember. Snacky New York for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. I understand yeah. your. I understand your take. However, my take is that it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best movies that made in the last thirty years for sure. Yeah. Uh, Roger Roger Ebert, who I'm a disciple of, as you know, called mm-hmm. it the best movie of the 2000s, and he nearly put it on his top 10 of all time list it was going to be either that or tree of life he ended up going with tree of life but uh Synecdoche was like number 11 basically um so i have a lot of thoughts about it 
and we can talk about it in a full episode someday in I, the future. It's another one of those films that I think if I if I watch it four times, after the fourth watch, I'd be like, oh, this is just genius, and, and I understand every single part of it, why it's necessary. But watching it the first time, it's so overwhelming. That it's extremely dense. It's like yeah. one of the most, it's maybe the most dense movie I've ever yeah. seen in terms of visu- visually yeah. and narratively. Yeah. And thematically, for that, that how matter. much time do you yeah. spend while watching that movie saying cynic doche in your head? Because just during this conversation, <laughs> I just keep saying cynic doche. Uh, zero, none, zero. zero. Yeah, I did I not. Think, I, that know that's not, not I know that's not how it's pronounced. That's how I read it. And then I just it's in my head, cynic doche. <laughs> also, really great title. First of all, that's a good vocabulary word, synecdoche. I learned what that is because of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a figure for speech. those who want to learn. It means. Um, Using like the part of something to refer to the whole, or using the whole of something to refer to a part. Yeah. Uh, and Schenectady is a town in New York. Yes. So that 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 title is actually a pun. It is Schenectady, New York, which is a pun. And also Schenectady is extremely relevant to the plot of that movie. Uh, again, using a part to refer to the whole. Um, he builds a world within a world within a world within a world in Schenectady. Oh, Charlie. <laughs> That's where we begin. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, well, that's cool, man. Uh, anything else you watched, or is that the last one? No, I mean, I yesterday it was my birthday, and I went to see the Matrix. Happy birthday, Matrix. Hugo! Woo! So, Woo! Yeah. What are you now, like twenty three? <laughs> I'm twenty six. Uh, oh sucks. my god! Yeah. Yeah, one foot it in the sucks. grave. Yeah, <laughs> one foot genuinely in the grave. does, but it's okay. I'm alright. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I promise, I'm fine. I was at eight. <laughs> I was at a I was at a thirtieth birthday party last night, so your 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 baby turned twenty six. Oh, I get it, I get it. But there's something about right, being closer to thirty than to twenty that stings, you know. Yep, yep. I gotta say, man, thirties are pretty cool. At least I'm only a couple years into them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, Josh. Right. Everyone who complains yeah. about their thirties, I'm like, I don't get it. Thirties have been great for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, like it. I, I like to. I, I'm gonna believe you guys. So something to look. So speaking. To. Speaking of entering your 30s and getting old, I watched Tick, Tick, Boom this week, which mm-hmm. is uh, a movie where Jonathan Larson laments turning 30, uh, among other things. Um, Grizz, kind of like you, like I, I thought it was pretty good. Like I, I enjoyed it. I liked it more than I thought I would. Um, didn't love it, but uh, you know, I think I liked it about as much as I was ever going to like uh, a movie like this. Um, having not never been a theater kid myself, uh, I can see, it, the movie has real theater kid energy. It really and I mean does. that as. <laughs> Like, take that to however you want to mean. Like, I mean it as a compliment and kind of an insult, but, like, mostly a compliment. But, like, you know, it's got theater energy. It's just, it is what it is. Uh, but, yeah, I thought it was really good. Andrew Garfield's really freaking good in that. He is. Um, he's probably going to get nominated for Best Actor. Um, I, I hope so, because, yeah, he's, he's great. Um, and some some of the songs are just bangers. Yeah, that, I think my issue with, with it is yeah. that some of the songs were absolute bangers, and then other ones... Some just, of them were pretty forgettable, yeah. And so it yeah. kind of makes sense why this wasn't a hit for Jonathan Larson, you know, the way that Rent was, because every song in Rent is an absolute banger. So, you know, he I think this uh you don't you don't agree? Oh, we're gonna have to talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Rent everyone has their thoughts on Rent, I think. Um I don't I don't I don't feel I don't think like I'm informed enough to have thoughts on Rent, but um <laughs> I have zero thoughts on Rent. I barely know what it is. So <laughs> It's not it's not the songs that I'm Kind of oh well, yeah. Lots of people have out. have issues with the uh, the portrayal of that lifestyle and the content, and, and yeah, the content and all that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, lots of people, have it, but yes. the music itself is fantastic, and it's it, pretty good. In yes. Tick Tick Boom, I, I for me it was like about half the time I was like, oh yeah, now we're getting it. I can see the shades of what I love from Rent, 
Uh, and then other times, I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing I watched was just uh, in preparation for this conversation, I rewatched Being John Malkovich for the first time in a while. Um, good movie, but man, that's just a weird, it's, weird movie. It's man. a like, hard I, I, sell. <laughs> it, I'm with it. I'm with the movie up until the whole um, eternal old people plot is introduced. <laughs> when it gets there, I'm yeah. like. Okay. okay, I'm glad you got just uh, you got hung up on that as well, Hugo. Because I was like, wait, yeah. what? I was like, sure. <laughs> I just like I, th- I that's what I had to was see. about something else, and it, it's the story itself is going in a direction that I don't understand how it fits with the themes. It, it, all that that much. felt I, very out of nowhere for me. <laughs> yeah, but apart from that, I think really good movie. There's a lot of a lot of just you just have to accept it with that movie because I, it's yeah it's, I don't I don't even mind that because I it's it's obviously so fantastical that I'm not I'm not necessarily hung right. up on on the mechanics of how it works that's not I don't know I don't I don't really mind that but I just think that that's that plot point is I don't know maybe superfluous but I might be just again it's an, it's another one of those really, really weird movies that maybe if you watch it again it makes more sense um, everything else I think. Uh, fits into one theme and that part just kind of i don't understand its function thematically i mean it has to create stakes and like a you know like a binary this will happen or this will happen kind of thing so that the climax can happen i guess like that's my defense of it but like i agree with you guys that like the the charm for me the charms of that movie are you know number one just the originality of the idea Mm -hmm. um that's a, a big slime point and number two like the specificity about like the floor seven and a half and yeah. uh the secretary being unable to understand anything anybody says but being um, absolutely convinced chimp- that everyone else yes is, is speaking yeah. poorly <laughs> uh the chimpanzee and like the very very weird off kilter like the interactions people have with each other is like it's kind of like an elevated it's not like how normal people talk to each other like no. yeah. when maxine and um i can't remember uh the uh john cusack character's name john john cusack <laughs> yeah when, when they talk to each other like it's it's very strange i don't know it I like the movie a lot, but it, mm-hmm. it is, it, it's, it's interesting that like, it's been, I've been, I've known about the movie for a long time and I've seen it from, you know, from an early age. So like coming back to it with kind of fresh eyes this week for the first time in a while, cause you guys were watching it for the first time. Um, you kind of step back and you're like, man, this is really weird. This is just really, really bizarre. There's just a couple, um, like, for me it was, it was the old people and then, uh, the part where John Malkovich goes through the portal himself i love that part i i enjoyed it a lot but it is one of those parts that makes you question like you like they they had set up rules for how this works and then Mm -hmm. like i they they break the rules there right and 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 him going into the tunnels is breaking the rules right i i love that part as well i think so i it was super interesting but that's also a part i'm like wait okay i guess i just have to accept it (laughs) <laughs> I just, honestly it's, i also it's, just think it's a stroke of genius to choose john malkovich yes for this. completely agree. like it's because yes, he's not completely. like because i think a lesser version of this movie is oh you're the you're the sexiest movie star in the world yeah you're being Robert Downey life Downey is glamorous and, and that's <laughs> and you know and that's the premise the premise here is like this interesting actor but that has a very strange energy that you don't maybe see in a lot of major movies anymore and like and right the c- correct level of fame too. yeah exactly right like he's not yes exactly it's, he, they're not choosing exactly like tom cruise or something like that well that's it's funny you, you know say I mean? that because i believe if you if you go to the wikipedia page for being john malkovich and you, 
some of the early feedback he got from people in Hollywood is appa- yeah. apparently somebody at one point said, why couldn't it be being Tom Cruise? Yeah, like that. yeah, because so. that's not the point. Yeah, it wouldn't work. Yes. Yes. Also, he has a weird energy that I think works perfectly for, for this. Just say, I love his performance specifically. <laughs> it must be closed for the love of God. Yeah, honestly, uh, I think that move, that hour 50 or hour 40, however long it is, is worth it for the two minutes when he's in his own head. That's yeah. just yeah. an all-time sequence. Uh, I love it. It's and, super uh, enjoyable. Speak- <laughs> yes. So speaking of being John Malkovich and speaking of actually that scene, uh, that kind of is a necessary bridge to talk about adaptation, uh, which is our film to remember today, because the adaptation opens with, on the set of being John Malkovich actually filming the scene where he goes in his own head and there's uh, Malkoviches everywhere. Um, and that that's also where you got to kind of start talking as like the, the origin of, of adaptation itself. Um, well, okay, so backing up. So Adaptation and Being Jim Malkovich were both written by Charlie Kaufman, both directed by Spike Jones. Um, had the same uh, cinematographer, which was Lance Accord, same editor, which was Eric Zunbrunen. Sorry if I mispronounced that. And the same uh, composer by the great and somehow Oscarless Carter Burwell, who's a longtime collaborator of the Coen brothers and Martin McDonough and uh, just written some just banger scores and somehow doesn't want an Oscar. Um, so it's same creative team across the board between adaptation and being John Malkovich. And as, it, or so I've read uh, the origin of adaptation was um, Charlie Kaufman was actually trying to adapt the book, the orchid thief was struggling with writer's block, which is something we see in this movie. And he had a crazy idea where instead of making it just a movie about the orchid thief, it's a movie about him writing the orchid thief and he brought this idea to Spike Jones while they're making being John Malkovich. And Spike Jones was like, hey, good idea. You should pursue that and, you know, see what happens. And then what happens is they made adaptation and Charlie Kaufman was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, uh, Charlie Kaufman said of Spike Jones, had he said I was crazy, I don't know what I would have done. And he also said, I really thought I was ending my career by turning that in, being the script. Um, so we can thank Spike Jones, I guess, for uh, encouraging Charlie Kaufman to pursue this wacky idea. Um, so actual boilerplate stuff about the movie, uh, as I alluded, it is um, adapted kind of from the book The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. But backing up further, uh, John LaRoche was a real guy who was arrested for orchard poaching in Florida in 1994. Susan Orlean is an actual writer who wrote a profile on John LaRoche for The New Yorker in January 1995 in an article called Orchid Fever. Then she uh, expanded that uh, New Yorker profile into a nonfiction book called The Orchid Thief, which was released in 1998. And either the article or the book or both were optioned by, um, I guess, Paramount. Uh, yeah, Paramount to uh, be made into a movie. And they, at some point in the late 90s, hired Charlie Kaufman to adapt the book, and he struggled to do so, and to um, his solution to his writer's block was to write himself into his screenplay, and so now the movie is both a story, or, you know, a story about John LaRoche, but also a story about Susan Orlean writing about John LaRoche, but also a story about Charlie Kaufman writing about Susan Orlean writing about John LaRoche, so uh, a hall of mirrors, if you will. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I- I've used the term with a past and future guest friend of the show tj keely i've used the term a movie's up its own ass before mm-hmm. and he like doesn't really know what i'm what i mean this is what i mean this is exactly what i mean when i say a movie's up its own ass it is but in this case uh, literally yeah like it's kind of a well, it, yeah. i mean 
this movie does like document its own creation. Like there, yeah. like there are many scenes where uh, Charlie Kaufman, who is again a character in this movie, uh, played by Nick Cage, is writing a screenplay and like narrating it as he writes it, and everything that he writes is a, at some point a scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, I think without exception, I'm pretty sure. Um, so uh, uh, apparently Tom Hanks was in conversation to play uh, Charlie and Donald Kaufman. John Turturro was approached to play John LaRoche, and but they ended up going with Nick Cage for the Kaufman twins and uh, Chris Cooper for LaRoche. And um, apparently there's a long list of people to possibly play Robert McKee. And Robert McKee himself suggested Brian Cox, and that's why Brian Cox plays Robert McKee in a role that I really, really enjoy. We can talk about that later. Uh, Susan Orlean, I love this quote. She said that reading the screenplay, quote, was a complete shock. My first reaction was absolutely not. They had to get my permission, and I just said, no, are you kidding? This is going to ruin my career. Very wisely, they didn't pressure me. They told me that everybody else had agreed, and I somehow got emboldened. It was certainly scary to see my see the movie for the first time. It took a while for me to get over the idea that I had been insane to agree to it, but I love the movie now. And if you watch this, I commiserate. I understand why Susan Orlean would be hesitant to <laughs> sign off on it, because, uh... Um, I think Meryl Streep's portrayal of her is really good, but, um, it's also largely fictitious and, yeah. um, you know, there's some stuff that I, I wouldn't want mine associated with. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, <clears throat> movie was ultimately released. I feel released. like the movie, the movie still has a sense of playfulness with everything that it does. So it doesn't feel as, as, uh, self-serious. Like, I don't know if I'm, I, I think I can, you can tell the movie is writing itself as it happens. And so what happens doesn't seem to be as impactful in, for the real world uh, characters, I guess, for the real yeah. world people it's based on. You know what I mean? And you can also you can kind of also feel where the reality of what happened yeah. you know, with Susan Orlean and John LaRoche in real life, you can see the point where Charlie Kaufman's making it up. Yeah. Know? Like there, yeah. <laughs> kind of. It fits. Like it's a logical progression in the story. Like I, you know, so mm-hmm. it's not coming out of left field or anything. But you can still kind of tell, like, okay, this is where the the break from reality is, at least from my perspective. For sure, but I also think there's some stuff before the very clear break from reality that she might object to. Yeah. You know, her portrayal possibly. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I get it. Uh, movie was ultimately released December six, two thousand two, uh, in limited, very limited release. It was only released on seven screens. Um, expanded a few times. It never it never got any wider than 672 screens. Sometime in like February of 2003, I assume around when the Oscar nominations came out. Um, but it uh, ultimately made 32 million at the box office against a budget of 19 million, uh, and that's split between 22 domestic and 10 international. So I mean, it did fine, but like that's that's not very good, honestly. Yeah. Um, but it was nominated at the Oscars for Best Actor for Nick Cage, Best Supporting Actress for Meryl Streep, Best Supporting Actor for Chris Cooper, which uh, he won. And uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. And notably, the screenplay is credited to, uh, written as, uh, screenplay by Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman. So Donald Kaufman was actually nominated for an Oscar, even though he does not exist. Mm -hmm. And to my knowledge, he's the only fictional person to ever be nominated for an Oscar. And I do know that the Academy specifically said that if the Kaufman twins are to win, they will have to share one statue they will not get to. (laughs) Very, Very cheeky and funny. Um... Also, uh, this is this is a bit of an inside baseball, but I may have explained this before, but when you see multiple writers credited on a screenplay, if there's an ampersand used, that means they collaborated. If there's an A and D used, that means they 
did not collaborate and just wrote two separate drafts, but both contributed enough to the final script that they deserve credit. Oh, okay. This is an A&D credit. So this is Charlie Kaufman, A&D Donald Kaufman, which, as we'll discuss, makes sense <laughs> makes given sense. what the screenplay ultimately is. So I thought that was, like, I didn't notice that until uh, this most recent watch. I thought that was uh, very fun. <laughs> and so even the credits um, of the movie are meta. Yes, yes. Also, uh, fantastic. not to not to get into spoilers or anything, but this movie is dedicated to the memory of Donald Kaufman, if you watch uh, <laughs> to the end of the credits, which I thought was interesting and funny. Um, so, uh, briefly, I wanted to ask you guys what your history with this movie was. I think you guys were both seeing it for the first time, but uh, I can talk about my history if you like. But I also want to know uh, what your relationship to Charlie Kaufman's work. And I'll start with Hugo. I did see this for the first time uh, this week. Uh, the first movie that I saw from Charlie Kaufman, as I think, written by Charlie Kaufman, which I think is probably the one that most people have seen is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Just mm-hmm. saw a few years. I mean, yeah, quite a few years ago. Um, then, yeah I, yeah, I guess years later, I watched Being John Malkovich. And then I watched I've Been Thinking of Ending Things. And if you if you recall an episode from last, week, yeah, last year, I, I didn't, really like i'm thinking of ending things and i guess that's why i never actually went and and watched some other stuff from written by kaufman um but then i watched adaptation and synecdoche this week which i both uh, i i did enjoy adaptation more but i think both were really worth watching really interesting projects and and, you know i'm i'm actually back on board i'm I'm looking forward to anything he writes next uh, in a way that i wasn't before i think you would like anomalisa yeah, I'm also. I think I'm also going to watch Anomalies at this point. Yeah. Even just for completion's sake, I've seen all of them. Uh, might as well. Um, I think I'm thinking of any things is also very very dense. Uh, mm-hmm. I've watched that two or three times now, and like I'm still trying to wrap my head around everything it's doing. There's there's a lot to unpack, like an awful lot to unpack. So it's... I think I think I just think that movie. It I don't know it. The original story it's based on is such a pulpy uh, thing. And it is. And he turns it into something that it isn't, but you can tell it's coming from that. And I feel like you could condense it a little bit and do something a little, not necessarily more straightforward. In some ways, you could make it even less, uh, uh, you know, um, coherent and, and comprehensible. But in in, a, in some ways, I think it would work better for me, at least. Sure. It's a long movie. Grizz. It goes on. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically like... It's like four scenes too. Yeah, it's long. Exactly. It's like over it's... over two hours. It's like four scenes, pretty much. It's yeah. it's wild. <laughs> Sorry, Grizz, go ahead. What's your uh, relationship to this movie and or Kaufman's work? So as we had uh, talked about, you like we had talked about a little bit being John Malkovich last week we, we, when we were preparing for this. Uh, we had talked about how for some reason being John Malkovich was a movie that just was on TV a lot uh, when I was you know younger, and I still don't know why. Like it was on TV as often as it was, because it does seem like a very I don't either. <laughs> niche film. But it was on often enough that I watched parts of this movie multiple times over the years, and it wasn't until, you know, this week that I finally watched it beginning to end, uh, you know, so that I could form a coherent opinion on a fairly incoherent movie <laughs> in terms of, uh, of what the heck is happening. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. And Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I think, is uh, is the other one I've seen from Charlie Kaufman before uh, adaptation, and I really, really enjoy that movie. I think it's it, it's excellent, uh, and it is. I love that movie as an example of uh, comedic actors uh, showing their chops, right? You know, because 
some some of them are able to make that jump and others aren't. And I, you know, Jim Carrey does an excellent job in that one. Uh, but other than that, I don't I don't have like that much attachment to Charlie Kaufman. Uh, so I think that kind of made this an interesting week for me because uh, and we'll get more into it. But like when we're when we're watching adaptation, I'm like the whole time I'm like. Is he like this? Is this is this really is this him, <laughs> or is he making Which a is, version of him that he thinks is humorous? <laughs> right. So I, I want to actually have a section in the outline. So I want to talk about that because like his portrayal of himself is very not very generous, and he's you know no. yeah uh, not not a very rosy self depiction. But also like the Donald character, given that he's fictional, is is interesting also him? in a. <laughs> Yeah, right. I'm, I'm kind of curious as to like the fact the fact that he made him a twin brother is an interesting choice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. In that, especially in a movie where he's writing himself as a character and then gives himself a twin brother that doesn't actually exist, uh, is an interesting choice. I kind of want to unpack that a little bit. Um, also, full disclosure, my headphones kind of like disconnected while you're talking, so I missed most of your answer there. But I, I, I came I came back in as you're talking about Jim Carrey. So I'm assuming you're talking about Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine, and not you know the Grinch for some reason. That I, you know I don't know. My, my, my he went off the rails. Charlie Kaufman is that I think he yeah. is a lot like the Grinch, which reminds me of Jim Carrey. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm sorry I can't like respond directly to what you just said, but uh, I will give my own history with the movie, which is um, and I guess Charlie Kaufman in general. Um, I first saw. Like Hugo, Eternal Sunshine, just because like I was a little too young when uh, Mockwitch came out and Adaptation came out, but I was like pretty much the right age when Eternal Sunshine came out, and um, so I saw that first, and I think that's like a good entry point into his stuff because it's like it's got broad appeal with Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey, and it it won an Oscar, and like it's a you know a romance, but it's also very cerebral. Uh, mm-hmm. It takes place literally inside somebody's head, which is not the first time he wrote a movie that takes place inside somebody's head. Um, realistically, but it's I the think third that's like time he's written a movie yeah. taking place inside someone's head. Yes. <laughs> I mean, pro- probably more than half his, most of his movies either literally or in a very overt figurative sense take place inside somebody's head. So it's kind of yeah. his, his shtick. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good, uh, I think Eternal Sunshine's a good entry point. I wouldn't say it has broad, like broad appeals made the wrong word, but it, it is more accessible, I think, than, uh. Than even John Malkovich or adaptation. I think there's you can you can enjoy the movie on a, on a surface level. I think more yes re- compared to some of the other films he wrote, where, yeah. where you have to really unpack and try to understand what the movie's doing. And, and if you just take it literal, literally, it it just falls apart. It doesn't matter. But that's not the speaking point. of unpacking. Uh, mm-hmm. The next thing I saw was Snecticky, and I, I yeah. sought that out because I know how much Ebert loved it, and also because I have to say, uh, friend of the show T.J. Keeley loved it. We were in high school together at the time or like just finishing up high school. And like he um, uh, really sang that movie's praises when it came out and still does. And so that convinced me to watch it. And that, um, that was kind of a, a sliding doors moment of like, I saw that at the right time, at the right age. And it really had a very profound effect on me. Um, and so I remember being, I was working at like this summer school at the time and I brought in the DVD of Snack Cause I think I was like, you know, we were giving movie recommendations to, co-workers and everything and one of my co-workers said i think charlie kaufman peaked with adaptation mm. when i was talking about snecticky and i'd never heard of adaptation i hadn't seen it but because he said that i'm like wow i mean i thought eternal sunshine was pretty good i think the snecticky is pretty good so if you think he peaked with adaptation i gotta check this out and uh, i did and it's uh among my favorite movies now i really really enjoy this I, th- I think i saw i think i saw being john Malkovich after this which mm. is not which is ideal because 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's not ideal. But I can't remember that. Maybe <laughs> maybe I'd seen like parts of Malkovich. That would make um, that would know. make the scene at the beginning while they're shooting it and they're like hunching it through the hallway of the set. <laughs> that would be so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. It, it is, it's definitely not required, but it is immensely helpful if you've seen me and Jenna Malkovich before you see Adaptation. Uh, and then after that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in from that point. I haven't seen Human Nature, which is a movie that he made with Michelle Gondry before Eternal Sunshine. Um, I've seen part of it. Extremely weird movie. Uh, the part I've seen, Hillary Duff's in it for like 20 seconds. Um, like sure. <laughs> either pre or right around Liz McGuire, Hillary Duff, which is bizarre. Um, but yeah, uh, Anomalisa, I saw as soon as I could when it came out and, afterwards i had to walk around uh the sidewalk by myself for like 20 minutes just to (laughs) process it and um i really enjoyed i'm thinking of any things um but it is you know anomalisa is a a stop motion right it is stop motion yeah and it's also a very weird movie but in a uh i think a a good way charlie kaufman Um, appears to have uh at least a minor obsession with puppetry (laughs) well so uh, I, I I can't pronounce his last name, but the guy who plays Starburns on Community, Dino Stenanopoulos, something Greek. I apologize. Yeah. Um, he uh is like uh he and Kaufman were in the same circles in the nineties. I think I think he made the show Moral Oral. I'm yes. pretty sure, which is like mm-hmm. an animated show, like an adult animation Kaufman show. Kaufman wrote an episode and of I think, that. Yeah. So Kaufman, like before he started writing features, was in like those writers' rooms, and again in that orbit of Dino. Sorry, I can't pronounce your last name. Starburns from Community, uh, who is again like in in the stop motion world and that kind of thing. And actually, I think he wrote Anomalisa. I think was supposed to originally just be like a radio play that he wrote for like a show that his friends were putting on, and then ended up like making that into a fe- a stop motion feature from the radio play that he wrote. Which is interesting because um, Anomalisa has a lot of characters, but only three voice actors, um, which is a intentional choice in the movie. You have the main character voiced by. Uh, David Lewis, and you have the Anomalisa character voiced by Jennifer Jason Lee, and then every other character is voiced by Tom Noonan. Um, and again, that's a, a thematic and plot choice, which if you watch the movie, will make sense. Uh, good movie. Um, so yeah, sorry, adaptation. Um, like I said, I, I really enjoy this. Um, one of my favorite movies. I'm glad you guys got to see it. Um, and I wanted to, I think, starting the discussion i want to talk about what i think is kind of the hook of the movie which is the the meta aspect uh is that fair to say that's the hook of the movie yeah i think i would think so yeah okay yeah and uh again the meta aspect being as i already said it is ostensibly a movie that is an adaptation of the orchid thief by susan orlean and uh it is kind of that for to, to an extent but it's it's really about the process of adapting the orchid thief itself so again the, the movie documents its own creation which i think is clever and fun but uh you know some people might find that tiresome where are you guys at on the meta stuff i i I eat that shit up so where are you guys at who do you want to go first grizz well i'll tell you i found it very interesting but also (laughs) very distracting (laughs) because uh because i you know it became very clear that it was i mean well just from the premise you know this is going to be a, a meta sort of film because it's about the adaptation of an adaptation of a article and you know <laughs> uh so just knowing that initial premise you it's going to be a little uh not i want to say navel gazing but that's not exactly the right thing it's very much navel gazing yeah I you think. think you think that fits because 
because normally yeah. when people do navel gazing, it's self-aggrandizing and that they they think it's very you know uh, pro self, like the person who's doing it is yeah. thinking very highly of themselves. But Charlie Kaufman is not thinking very highly of himself in this movie. That's why I'm not sure it's the exact right word. But uh, in any case, I I find myself watching the movie and then I start to think about the real Charlie Kaufman. And then I start thinking about yeah. like what what parts are like true to character of himself and what's what uh, something he's done for the movie. And then also not knowing that his brother didn't exist. Uh, <laughs> you didn't know that going in. Didn't know that going in. So, okay. <laughs> but then, like as the movie progressed, I started to think, well, God, if this guy was writing, you know. If, it was, if he was also becoming a screenwriter, I feel like I would have heard about him at, at, at some point. <laughs> My genre is thriller. What's yours? Yeah. <laughs> I love that line so much. So um, I, I, yeah. I end up kind of like finding myself drifting off in my own head, thinking about what's going on in Charlie Kaufman's head, which, you know, to some extent is the point of the movie. Uh, so absolutely, yeah. I, I found that very, very interesting. But it is, again, at the end of it all, uh, tiresome is not is the right word but in the wrong sense i was exhausted at the end of the movie but <laughs> yeah i mean I, I just referenced community there's there is a line in community in season two at one point where uh yvette nicole brown says uh some people don't like movies about movies about movies i mean some of us got work in the morning damn charlie kaufman she actually evokes <laughs> charlie kaufman's name which says that and says some of us have work in the morning which <laughs> makes me laugh when you say you are tired after watching this so that, yeah. that makes sense. so but uh, like it's not like it's tiresome like like it's poorly done or it's too much it's just that by the end like your your brain has been thinking non-stop for the entire run of the movie and so it is like physically tiring <laughs> you can arguably you know to use a phrase i don't like turn your brain off for the last 20 minutes which is very much the point of the it last is, 20 yeah. minutes. we can we can we can talk about that uh <laughs> later on in the outline uh, Hugo, what do you think of the meta stuff in uh, in adaptation? I I loved it. I I, yeah, me too. I love when a movie breaks the fourth wall. I love when uh, I I love when things are self aware in 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 many ways. Just because I think um, I don't know with a lot of uh, of movies, you can sometimes even if they, when they're really well made, you still can see what the movie is doing. You can tell. It, by you know, if we take Donald's words for it, which genre the movie is following, which tropes it's going for, and this always kept me guessing at what was going to happen next. I I, I was always wondering: is this real? Is this is this something that the movie is this thing that he's writing now? Is it actually going to happen in the movie? Did it happen in real life? Did it not happen in real life? And I it, and I understand how it can take you out and it can get a little tiring, but to me, I found found it really engaging and I what I especially liked about it was that I didn't think that it was taking itself that seriously despite being so complex and so self-aware um, I think that it had a again as I said before a playfulness about it that that never made it um, drag for me um, also also I just think the casting choices are so great uh, and and every role is is just really entertaining in its own way when Donald first showed up I was like oh maybe maybe Charlie Kaufman sees himself talking to himself in real life giving himself advice and then it turns out he's actually a character in the movie and and you know at the, at the beginning I wasn't even sure whether he existed or not in the movie itself um the movie always kept me guessing at what was going to happen and 
anytime there was like a line or, or something that specifically hinted at what was going to happen next, I got excited. Like there's, there's specifically a moment when he is at the height of his like crisis and writer's block when he goes to see this weird seminar that he'd made fun of before. And, yeah, you know, not to spoil, but, you know, the guy says, and never use uh, voiceover. God help if you use voiceover yeah. narration in your work, my friends. God yeah. help you. And the voiceover stops. There's yeah. no voiceover, <laughs> voiceover for the next 40 minutes of the movie. I, I thought that's just that was that's so genius. Funny. That's perfect. Yeah. So I, I really, I really, 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 really liked it. Uh, inside you, there are two wolves. Charlie Kaufman and Don Kaufman. Uh, Grace, take your finger up. What are you going to say? <laughs> well, I was just going to say part of what I think makes it uh, so the, – the movie itself is self-aware. And I think the way that it achieves that de- degree of self-awareness is through Charlie Kaufman's own self-deprecating portrayal of himself. Because, you know – it, this could get away from you and and start to be too fantastical and too and too weird, but uh, by making himself in the movie a neurotic mess, the movie can be as much of a neurotic mess as he wants it to be, uh, because you know it helps bring back the humanity of Charlie Kaufman. I don't. Know, it's just right. it's, it's odd. Yeah. <laughs> It's, well, there's always I think that, that grounding, that sort of emotional grounding that I think everyone can, in their own maybe smaller or, or different ways, relate to of just being stuck on something and, and knowing you can do it, but at the same time not really knowing you can do it, not really believing in yourself and thinking, oh, I'm just, I'm a mess, I'm, you know, I'm a fraud, I, you know, getting imposter syndrome, even though everyone's telling you, no, you're good, you, you know how to do this, you've got this, and you just go into like this weird existential crisis about everything. Um, I think there's there's that emotional grounding that it's so relatable that so even if the movie goes crazy places, you're still always interested in what it's doing. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about Charlie Kaufman more later mm-hmm. and like the, the choices he makes in depicting himself. But I want to talk about something else before that. Before we move on, though, I do want to say real quick to both of your points. Uh, Grizz, I think, I think that this works because it is kind of self-deprecating yeah. and like had it, it's 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 more tolerable because he because it's not as navel gazing to use your term he's, he's not self-aggrandizing at all and like if he was it would be you know he does actually say you know at the midpoint it's he wrote himself into his into his own script it's narcissistic it's solipsistic it's pathetic like those things are not true but like it's more tolerable because he is self-deprecating yeah you know I, I think that's that's probably fair to say but before we get too far into Kaufman, I do want to talk a bit about, like, John LaRoche, like, the story that he is ostensibly adapting here. Um, so, again, John LaRoche is a real guy, and he was written about by Susan Orlean, and, um, uh, you know, she did write a book about him and about flowers and about, you know, adaptation and Darwin, that kind of stuff, and, like... Kaufman did try to make that into a movie. So, like, and there are parts of that in this, like, especially in the first hour, like, you know, you do see John LaRoche in Florida with the Seminoles and uh, that kind of stuff. Like, but as the character Charlie Kaufman says in the, in, in this movie that there's not enough, there's no story here, there's not enough for a full movie, um, which is probably true, which is why the third act has to be what it is. But, like, what did you guys think of the the LaRoche part and the Orlean part before we get into the Kaufman part? Uh, Hugo, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's you. You summed it up perfectly when when you mentioned what he says in the movie. There's not enough story there. That's not a movie. It's just kind of 
Oh, and it, I think it's an interesting New Yorker article, and it might be an yeah. interesting book for people who are really interested in flowers. But to turn that story into a film just doesn't. I just don't see how you can do it. And I and I think the the idea of being tasked with it and making something completely different, really, and completely way more interesting than that story, while also at the same time, in some ways, telling that story, like he did. Yeah. You know, there. if you cut out all the bits about John Roche, there's a good, you know, 30-minute movie about him. And, and maybe that's the amount of, of story that you had with that character. I feel but, like I got it. Like, I feel like I got the yeah, John Roche story. There really you know? isn't a need for more. You don't need to have to, you know, otherwise you'd have to, oh, go to his childhood and show him being really into fish. And then he finds out and then he's like, fuck and, fish. And, like, and old Dutch mirrors and fish. Yeah, and, it's like, you know, that's... Yeah. That's, and internet pornography. <laughs> yeah, it's just not really. I don't know. I don't think there's much there to to. I don't know who tasked him with with adapting the book, but it just didn't seem a good idea in the first place to me. Tilda Swinton did apparently. Yeah, Tilda Swinton. Thank you, Tilda. Yeah, this movie. Um, who's delightful in this as always. Yes, um, she is very good in this. But yeah, I, I think it's an interesting story, and I and I think it, it's an interesting article, and I think the way it's put into the movie and the way it's twisted and changed to serve what the movie is doing is really clever. I, Chris. I'm going to disagree with you guys. I think there is a John LaRoche story to be told and could be an entire feature film. I think that the reason that it appears that there isn't is because Charlie Kaufman is trying to illustrate his own thought process on it, which was that he didn't think there was enough story. So for the majority of the movie, that because we are seeing the movie that he is writing as it's being written, he is not writing a full story about John LaRoche because he doesn't he doesn't think there is enough there. But if you look at the the bones of John LaRoche's story, we can see that there's there's movies that can be made out of that. The whole story with his wife and the accident and the depression that could come after that and how that affected his, you know, life goals and everything, uh the storm that destroyed his nursery, you know. These are all, you know, climactic events that could be done in a movie and you know, I I think it's definitely possible that you could have had a full movie just about this story. But when you explain it that way, I feel like Robert Zemeckis could make that movie. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was I was literally thinking of a Forrest Gump type, you know, yeah. scenario. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh but uh the other thing that I wanted to say about that was I and the reason I, I definitely think that is because I think it's a lesson that Charlie Kaufman learns in the movie from uh, Robert McKee. When because he goes in, he's like, well, you know, I'm trying to tell this story about a movie where like you know nothing really happens because you know you know because that's the way life is, and he's like, nothing really happens, <laughs> and then he like he yeah. goes off on him, and like that's that's the lesson there is like no, there was stuff happening to this guy all the time. Yes. yes. So that, that that's true. my view. That's on a really good point. La Roche yeah, <laughs> portion really of the point. movie. <laughs> yeah, and like you know, I do really enjoy the La Roche stuff. Uh, I, I, as I say here in the outline, like his his speech to uh, Susan Romaine about like insects and flowers and how they are like um, designed to as use his term for the insect to make love to this flower and then pollinate it and you know do their little dance as he says like that's a really really beautiful speech and it's like fantastic thought provoking yeah I, I, yeah, I, I really wanted to know was that speech something that Charlie Kaufman wrote this is another one where my mind went off did Charlie Kaufman write that speech or was that something that was written in the Orchid Thief that John LaRoche actually said, you know, and so like, I, I kind of want to go read the book or yeah. read the article yeah. and, and, and learn more about it because that, that speech really was like, that spoke to me. I was like, wow, flowers yeah. really are a miracle. And this is what Charlie Kaufman yes. 
you know, was trying to tell, and he told it right there. That was it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I also, is, think, uh, I also think that speech is just a great piece of writing in the sense that I always love when a movie is able to take, to present a character that initially is ridiculous, uh, you know, weird, kind of unattractive, and, and you know, you uh, he seems to be really weirdly into things that you don't understand, and then the movie flips it on you and is able to make this person really fascinating i think that's always very very good i, I enjoy that um there's a lesson and especially in because there. it is a lesson in judging people and it's also it, it also puts you in the shoes of susan or orlean who initially just thinks oh this guy is is nuts she and then she's when, the point of view character for that speech yeah, yes when then yes. when he's going when he's explaining all the way the way his brain works and the way he he views the world, he becomes fascinating to us in the same moment that he becomes fascinating to her, which I think is really well done. Yeah, I mean to to go back to what Gris was asking, whether that was written for the movie or in the article, I don't really know, but it it wouldn't surprise me if Kaufman wrote it, given like how well it's integrated into like th- th- this is three stories. It's the story yeah. of John LaRoche and Orchid Hunter. It's a story of Susan Orlean, a writer who is. Uh, becomes kind of fascinated by LaRoche and, you know, becomes passionate about finding a passion, basically, because LaRoche is a very passionate person. She admires that in him and wants to feel passionate herself. And then the third portion of the story is obviously a guy with writer's block uh, related to all three of these. But, like, the way they play off each other is very interesting. Like, the fact that... I- I'm sure the... I-, I don't know how much of the Orleans stuff is actually in The Orchid Thief, how much she talks about uh, wanting to care about something passionately, as she says, but, like... That works really well for me, and and how and how much like the Orlean character relates to the LaRoche character relates to the Kaufman characters, and like him kind of reflecting on both of them, like it, it all fits together really well, and I think that's I, really good. Um, my assumption is anytime we have voiceover by Meryl Streep, that's probably directly from the book, but you probably could right. be wrong. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, do you guys, you know, of the three stories I just said, the idiosyncratic orchid hunter, the Writer in Search of Passion, and then the screenwriter with Writer's Block. Which of those three did you like the most? I mean, Grizz. writer. The, they're all incredible, Like if I'm being honest. Like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. I, I would have watched any individual movie about any of those things, honestly. Nice. And the fact that it is yeah. all three at once is a triumph in screenwriting. So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah I, I, I like it. All. Like... Like, what I kind of noticed this on this most... First of all, I, I watched this movie a lot, like, eight or nine years ago, and I have not watched it since then, so this is the first time I've watched it in a long time. And it, it, I kind of forgot how much it jumps around in the in the first, like, half hour or so. It jumps between timelines and which character following, but, like, never really feels disjointed to me, and, like, it kind of runs the risk of, of doing that, but, like, I don't know. I think it fits together pretty well. I think I think the editing is fantastic, because it's, it's, it's always... The next scene always informs your thoughts on the previous scenes and vice versa. And even though it's jumping around between different stories, it always works. I was going to say, I almost didn't need the three years later or whatever the yeah. timeline in the future. I, did, I almost didn't need that on the screen, because I really do feel like the editing was done well enough that I always knew what timeline we were in, even with even without... You know, it, they didn't need to show it on the screen for me to know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, they eventually dropped that, but also, like, you know, seeing Susan Orlean fly to Miami to see LaRoche, uh, see, letting you know that that is in the past versus happening right now, I think is an important distinction they sure. make, but, you know, also the fact that Charlie Kaufman and Don Kaufman are following her indicates that you're in the present day and no longer right. a few years ago, I guess, so I guess, I guess you're right. Um, 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 um. 
Oh, okay. Uh, so there are three Oscar-nominated performances here. Uh, Nick Cage, Chris Cooper, Meryl Streep. Chris Cooper actually won. Uh, what do you guys think of the performances? Hugo, go. I, I think they're fantastic. I, I, I think this is, you know, when you manage to, you know, take Nick Cage and put him in a position to be great, he's he's great. Like he's, he's one so of the he's, he's one so of the great yeah. actors at playing these weird idiosyncratic characters. Like whenever he gets the right part for him, he's he's just captivating. I think, and and I also think the the performance by Meryl Streep is 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 incredible. Just because I, there's something about Meryl Streep, she's able to exude just this sense of complete innocence, and then the fact that she is so innocent and so pure. And then the movie turns that on you is, is so clever. Like by the there, end, there's some menace though. Yeah, there's some she's menace. She's menacing by sure. the end. She's yeah. a completely different. Yeah. You know, she goes through that change, and and the movie kind of takes your. I don't know. I don't know how it was in nineteen in two thousand and two because I was six, but takes your sort of preconception of what Meryl Streep is and who Meryl Streep is, and turns it on you because that that initial performance is so innocent and so. You know, she's sweet. She's she's clever. She's intelligent, but she's not. She's almost unassuming in some ways. Yes. But by the end, she's such a completely. There's a shift that 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 she does so well. There's that moment where where she's just, you know, tired and goes, oh, "We have to kill him." Very quietly. That, okay, that moment, that moment God, right that, there. So I, I, I have so the outline. Excellent. Yeah. I have in the outline that there are some some moments in this movie that I think are some of the best pieces of acting I've ever yeah. seen Meryl Streep do, and that exact moment is one of them. Where oh, like so good. the camera the camera holds on her for about ten or fifteen seconds. She doesn't yeah. say anything, but like you see in her eyes as she's processing mm-hmm. their situation, and like she starts to tear up. Mm-hmm. She starts to look around. She kind of like covers her own mouth because like by the shock of what she's about to say, and then like you just said, she says very softly, "We have to kill him," and that's it's such a great piece of acting. Yeah, it's, it's like it's, honestly one of my favorite things I've ever seen her do, and like. A small moment. I'm so glad you called that out because I was going to as well. Yeah. Also, uh, the scene where she uh, gets high for the first time and yeah. oh calls John God. LaRoche. Come I really on. like that. I-, I like that scene a lot too. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, I'm sorry. Grace, go ahead. Well, so uh, on the topic of Meryl Streep, I, she, I, I think for the most part, because she's such a prolific actress and we've seen her in countless movies, uh, she's kind of become a larger-than-life figure herself. And so in a lot, especially in recent years, a lot of her movies, I find it that she, they tend to have a, a similar character trait of being uh, a large presence in every scene. Uh, she, mm. you know, whatever she's doing on screen, Meryl Streep is, is the focus in, you know, because just she has become, she but, has become stunt casting to some extent recently, I think. Yeah. Well, because it, she's a draw. She's, mm-hmm. you know. You know, but but I was what what makes this so refreshing is that I, I I do really feel like especially at the beginning of the movie, she's almost small, right? Like yeah. She's you yeah. know, unassuming. She's you know, and obviously this was a while ago in her career, but Meryl Streep was already a big name, uh, by the yes. time this movie came out, and so it was just kind of fun to see that part of her, where that you know she is able to not be, the biggest presence in the scene she's you know she's just a writer she's she's an observer she's trying to uh you know learn without affecting you know the, the way that a, a reporter does right and then as she becomes more passionate and more involved you start to see that her presence builds until she does you know kind of build into a stronger personality you know as we see at the end when when she kind of has that small that moment where she's like 
well, we have to kill them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, while you're talking about that, while you're talking just now, like I think you touched on something that I'm, she is a big presence, but I think you could probably draw a line in the sand of Meryl Streep's filmography and do pre and post Devil Wars Prada. Yeah, because I think since the Devil Wars Prada, she's become like a bigger, somewhat stunt casting, possibly Hugo, like you said. But pre Devil Wars Prada, I think it was more. I mean, she's been doing stellar work for, for decades before Divorce Prada, but, like, I think that was, like, a kind of a changing of the guard and, like, the kind of roles that she had, and, like, her presence on screen, at least. I um, think that, that's the kind of moment that she, be, like, there's there's only a, there's only so many actors and actresses that reach that point, and I think it's, like, you know, her and Tom Hanks are kind of, like, you yes. know, they're just, they're, there's that point where they, they hit their career, and it's like, okay, it doesn't matter, yeah. you know, what, where you have them in the billing, they're the most important person in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Tom Hanks hit that early on. He hit that early on, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I also want to say, so Nick Cage, um, I, I read this most recent time, I was just reading up on this movie, apparently he uh, he didn't like, um, didn't really follow his instincts in this in this movie, he just apparently just did exactly, played it exactly how Spike Jones told him to play it, and like kind of just... First of all, Nick Cage is first of all he's a very talented actor. I'm a big Nick Cage fan. You'll you won't hear me bad mouthing him at all. But like, apparently he's just like a very professional guy by all accounts. Like he's a pro. He's he's acting as a nine to five job, and like he's a team player. Is what I mean. He like he you know no ego at all. Just he's he's there to make a movie, and he's collaborative. And like I think that is indicative. You know you know the fact that he just like went along with however Spike Jones directed him to perform. Like, I think that's indicative of a guy who just, you know, again, is collaborative and doesn't have ego or anything like that. And that's and a guy that, for better or for worse, I think he's yeah. a guy that for better or for worse gives himself to every performance. And absolutely. Gives it his and all. we love and him for that. It's, sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes it's not, but it, it's always in an endearing way. And I think at his best, he's one of the great actors. It's, of, you know, it's impressive that he can not have an ego given his success, but also just given his lineage in terms of, you know, Hollywood, you know, history, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's a Coppola. He's He's a Coppola. Yeah. (laughs) That's, and, and, you know, to go into his his entire career, he's, you know, been Nick Cage, right? Like, did he ever have a credit with his actual last name? Mm, If he did, it was like early eighties, I would think. So I don't, I'm not really sure. Before he became, you know, anything to yeah. talk about really yeah. and so like yeah. you know despite his lineage i do feel like he's he's earned his place himself which it can be really tough to do especially when you have a lineage in the industry <laughs> but I, I love i love him in this i mean i think it's like a he's got to play two polar extremes and i think he plays both really really well and like honestly i like i sometimes kind of take for granted it's the same guy playing donald and charlie which doesn't make sense because it you know they they're identical but like they're such different performances and such different energies. Like, he really does sell you they're two distinct people, which I think is really impressive. I wanted to say, on that note, while I was watching the movie, my dad came downstairs to get something out of the fridge, and he stopped and watched just a little bit of the movie. And the performance between between the two of them is so dynamically different. My dad actually, for a second, didn't realize that they were both Nick Cage. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um... Okay, so I have in the outline more about Donald, so I'm going to put a pin in that conversation real quick and just re- circle back to Chris Cooper, who, again, won Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this. Um, I really like him in this. Uh, again, like, he's got he's got some really great quotes that I still say a lot to, you know, my friends, whether it be, that's a much fuck fish, or uh, that speech about, you know, pollinating flowers we already talked about. Um, just great stuff. Uh, I don't know if, like, I think he's, like, 
but the least dynamic performance of the three, though, like it's it's interesting that he won the Oscar. I'm not sure who he was up against that year, but like, I I think Cage is better, and I think Streep is better. But you know, I like him in this. What, what do you guys think, uh, Hugo? What do you think of Chris Cooper in this? I don't know. I think I noticed him less, and when looking at doing research on the movie afterwards, I was kind of surprised that he was also nominated and and won. Not not that he's not. I mean, he I think he's really good, but I found so much to relate to in in the Charlie character and in the Susan character that I, you know, could relate to on, on a very human basic level on stuff that I go through in my everyday life that that him in some ways being the more straightforward performance while also being the most larger than life character mm-hmm. yeah. just didn't, I, I didn't connect to it as much. He didn't stand out as much to me. Even though I thought he was really good, but it wasn't my focus, I guess, uh, in the movie. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Grace, go ahead. Well, so what I, first I was going to say, I looked it up. The other people who were nominated for Best Actor in Supporting Role that year were Christopher Walken in Catch Me If You Can. Oh, uh, which so good. Fantastic. So uh, good. Yes. Ed Harris in The Hours, John C. Riley okay. in Chicago, and Paul Newman okay. in Road to Perdition. So, like... A really mm. pretty stellar group of guys here for for the this. Uh, I don't think Cooper should have won that honestly. As much as I love this movie, those are, that's 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 a tough. The tough only crowd. argument I could make, um, for like why for why I would justify his winning is that uh, this is the, you know, supporting role, right? And uh, I you could make arguments at least for what I've you know seen like especially Christopher Walken in Catch Me If You Can, there, that role is so important that and there's moments in the movie where Christopher Walken is the lead of those scenes if you if you know what I mean I don't know I'm, I maybe I'm just trying to find a justification I hate when you roll your eyes at me like that Josh Christopher Walken <laughs> is very much supporting in well Catch no I know he's, he's, he's yeah. in the whole movie I'm saying okay. there are scenes where you know that Christopher Walken I think there are scenes that scenes that LaRoche leads in this though yeah I think you can make the same argument yeah I think you probably okay can. here's 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 something here's something I I think this didn't really occur to me until this most recent watch but I'm, I'm wondering if this is a makeup Oscar for American Beauty three years earlier because mm. Chris Cooper I don't even know if he was nominated for supporting actor in American Beauty but he should have been um I think that is a much more I should I don't know if I should say that it's a much more interesting performance but I think he's very good in that um that, that is a more traditional Oscar kind of performance than this one um, so I wonder if that was like a, a makeup Oscar. Uh, I, th- I believe he lost, or I, again, I'm not sure if he was nominated, but if he was, he would have lost to Michael Caine in Cider House Rules for supporting actor in 1999. Um, Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Uh, another Kine. another uh, 2002 Oscar fact. So Nick Cage lost Best Actor to, I believe, Adrian Brody for The Pianist. And uh, I believe Adrian Brody is the first person to win an Oscar where everyone else in the category had already won an Oscar because he was up against uh, – this is going off the dome. I'm not looking at anything. I believe I'm he's reading, up against I'm reading it, so I'll fact check. Jack Nicholson in About Schmidt, who had already yeah. won two for One Flew Cuckoo's Nest and uh, uh, As Good As It Gets. He was up against Michael Caine, who had already won for Hannah and Her Sisters and, as I just mentioned, Sounder Hash Rules. He was up against Nick Cage, who already won for Leaving Las Vegas. And he was up against – Ah, uh, you can do this. Oh, Dan, Daniel Day-Lewis for yes. Gangs of New York. Yes. <laughs> who had already won for My Left Foot. Um, woo! Yes. And would go on to win uh, twice. Uh, he two would more go times, on to right? win two more times for yeah. There Will Be Blood and Lincoln. Um, so that's a little 
Oscar factoid. What um, I was going to say... I mean, another pretty stacked category, by the way. Yeah. Yes. When Adrian Brody is, like, the least celebrated actor on your list, then <laughs> that's I just list. wanted to double back to Chris Cooper just real quick. What the argument I was going to make is that this is uh, a... It's a, a a great example of a supporting role. I don't yes. think I don't think yes. he overpowers any of the other characters or any scene in you know, and so I, I I think it's a great encapsulation of what it is to be a supporting actor. Uh, so that was gonna say I was gonna say that's my justification, but I, I, of course I'm gonna agree with you, Christopher Walken. Uh, Catch Me If You Can is one of my all time favorite movies. <laughs> like, of me too, man. I, I want I Christopher Walken. I freaking love that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so I, I said I want to talk more about Donald, and I do, so let's, let's, let's pivot to that. Um, I, th- I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting choice, you know, to write yourself into your own movie, because then it immediately becomes, like, a reflective thing, like, what do, what does this writer think of himself, you know, in, in how he portrays himself, how he writes himself, and then he gives himself a twin brother, and I think it's, again, as I said earlier, it's interesting he gave himself a twin brother, and not just, like, you know, there's any number of ways to accomplish the plot mechanics of what needs to happen here, but the fact that it's a twin brother, I think, is is speaks more about the self-reflection happening here. And um, so, like, what what do you guys think of of the Donald of it all? Like, why is why is he included as a character? Like, what's his what's his purpose? Um, what can you what can we deduce about Charlie Kaufman and how he sees himself based on the Donald Kaufman character? Uh, let's start with Grizz. We think. Of I think that. Uh... Donald Kaufman serves a narrative requirement for this sort of movie in that Charlie needs someone to be jealous of. Uh, he needs someone to be judgmental of. And, uh, and so it, and it, a yin to better, his yang. Yeah. The yin to his yang. What better way to do that yeah. than a twin brother? Uh, that way you, you can also use your own personality. If you're Charlie Kaufman, you can write aspects of yourself into Donald and you can write aspects of yourself into the Charlie of the movie and get that juxtaposition. And I, I think it, it serves the movie really well to have that person for him to bounce off of and to butt heads with. And in the best way, because Donald is just, you just, I, I just love Donald. Like he's such a, you know, yeah. a, a carefree guy that like, yeah, maybe he's a little bit of a, a you know, a screw up historically in his life but he just perseveres and he's got a smile on his face and he thinks he can do it you know my favorite thing about donald as well is like no matter how poorly charlie treats him he's always nice to charlie he's still he loves his big brother he loves his brother and he's always there for him regardless like which is just mckee's a former fulbright scholar are you a former fulbright scholar charles (laughs) (laughs) and i love that he always calls Um, him charles yes yeah yeah (laughs) It's funny. My genre is thriller. What's yours? Um, yeah, I love the Donald character. Hugh, sorry, Hugo, you go ahead about the uh, Donald character. For me, yeah. it's like, in, in some ways, it's it's real-life Charlie Kaufman telling himself to maybe relax a little and get out of his own, like, genius mind and maybe not think too highly of himself sometimes. While at the same time, it's also him reflecting on, yes, but still, I don't want to write a genre. I do want to do something unique. So it's it's sort of that weird balance that he has to ride where don't get too full of yourself while also not giving into commercialism uh, directly. And, and the, the way the movie addresses it then as a whole it, with the story, I think, is fantastic as well because it, 
it does turn more commercial, but it serves the purpose of not of trying not to be commercial, which I think is really clever. Also, there's also he's fun. There's also something Very about fun. that because like um, Charlie in the movie, and I'm I don't know how he is in real life, is 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 miserable. Even though th- that miser- you know, him being miserable is self deprecating, and it can be it's entertain- entertaining as well. Um, the Donald character brings some levity to that that I think is needed because otherwise you could get a little bogged down in in how just depressed this guy is. Um, Grizz, you got a finger up. What do you got? I withdraw that finger. Okay, you withdraw. The finger. Okay, withdraw. <laughs> record show. Grizz withdraws his finger. Um, yeah, I mean, I have this later in the outline, but we can kind of talk about it now. Is like, you know, I think that he is, you know, uh. uh the Donald Kaufman character, I think, is self-criticism of Charlie Kaufman. Like, he's kind of making fun of himself and, like, again, uh, offering a, a, a counterbalance to his self-serious nature and his um, uh, neuroticism by having a different version of himself that is the opposite of neurotic and the opposite of self-serious. Um, but I also think he's a stand-in for... So he's a stand-in for self-criticism of Charlie Kaufman himself, but it's also a stand-in for criticism of the industry. I think that's pretty mm-hmm. clear. Yeah. Um, you know, Donald Kaufman uh, uh, writes a <laughs> a thriller called The Three, and as Charlie Kaufman says in the movie, it's a little obvious, it's a little overdone, but it ends up like apparently selling for high sixes against mil five, according to <laughs> Donald Kaufman. And oh, by the way, I love uh, Ron Livingston as the agent. He's so good as the agent. <laughs> Uh, I can't repeat a lot of the things he says. Right. Movie, but, um, <laughs> that was, was yeah, that was the funniest moment in the movie, though. Because, like, yeah. he, this guy is just having an identity crisis. And he's like, oh, you know that girl? Yeah, I did that. And it was, yeah. I was like... Yeah. Well, well I mean, again, that, that character is also uh, it, part and parcel with the criticism of the industry in that, like, mm-hmm. he's so wowed by the incredibly obvious and frankly dumb script that Donald writes. Yeah. Uh, it's like machine versus horse. <laughs> um... <laughs> But also, you know, so, but it is like a a philosophical difference between the two, you know, uh, you know, this movie, I think ultimately, and the point of the Charlie Donald dynamic is about compromise. And, um, you know, whether you're, you know, Charlie has these high minded ideals of telling a a true story about flowers that, you know, isn't Hollywoodized, to use that term. And Donald is, you know, in the business of writing a taut thriller that's entertaining and commercial and then this movie is ultimately a marriage of those two philosophies um, in a literal sense because the first two-thirds is the high-minded ideals and the last third is the uh, taut Hollywood thriller of it all. Um, and I want—I wanted to ask you guys where you fall on that spectrum of, of Donald's philosophy versus Charlie's philosophy. Like normally I'm more of a Charlie Kaufman person than a Donald Kaufman person, but I don't know, like this movie wouldn't exist without the Donald's of it all. Like so you, you need both. What do you think, Grizz? Well, I think we can tell just from our past discussions that I probably err a little more on the Donald side. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I dislike the the extremely heady stuff, but you know, I also I you know sometimes I do enjoy a movie where I I don't have to exercise my brain, uh, and you know, you you can talk about whether or not there you know you can approach movie movie criticism uh, the same way for those kind of movies because obviously. If you're looking at Citizen Kane and you're comparing it to Avengers Endgame, you know, it it's safe to say that one of these movies is a bigger triumph in uh, movie-making history and the other one is a bigger triumph in money-making history. So- <laughs> yes, it is. I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> so, 
but who's to say which one has more value and who's to say which one does one of them not deserve to exist, right? I think there's a place for both. And I really do think that's ultimately what this movie shows you is that uh, you, you can marry the two uh, and you can also, they can exist separately. They can be married together and there's still there. You can still find some value in either of those things. Uh, so that, that's my view on it. Hugo, where are you at on the Donald Charlie spectrum? I think it's, I think the movie itself is telling you that there is a balance, there can be a balance between the two. Yeah. You're not, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't all have to be high art and there is a way to write genre and, and pulp and, and make it, you know, very, very, very good filmmaking, very good writing. Just look at the whole careers of people like David Fincher, Quentin Tarantino, like even the Coen brothers to some extent that work in um, and I and I, I don't know if if Charlie Kaufman is in some ways jealous of some of these. Uh, not, I mean, not not jealous in the sense of 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 art, because I I think he really believes in what he writes and what he does. But maybe he is in some ways annoyed by how successful maybe other writers of his time are. I think that, he thinks that, that do operate in genre. I think he thinks that it might be easier for them. Right, that that yeah. they're not and dealing with the existential crisis that he's battling because the right. the way they're approaching their movies is easier to write. I think that may yeah. be where that is coming from. Which which might might be true, but it might also not be true. I think it, it just kind of. I think everyone's process to their own work, regardless of what their own work is, is completely different and unique, and so you can't really make a broad stroke with that. But I think when you asked this question, it made me think of Charlie Kaufman as a whole, as the movies that I've seen written by him. I think anytime there's a, a, I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think when, when you work with no limitations, when your own voice is, is the voice, your writer, director, and, and sort of there's no pushback. And, and when you have such a creative genius like Kaufman, that, but also that is very high-minded and, and in some ways do, does think highly of itself which isn't which isn't necessarily a bad thing um, you can you do run the risk of just going too far and not having any limitation on what you're doing which i guess is is the whole meaning of the movie synecdoche like he's reflecting that is the, on, that is the text yeah. that is the text of synecdoche new york to exactly. he's yes, reflecting absolutely. on on his own creative mind and how it just can be limitless and then then maybe you and overwhelming limitations because otherwise you're yeah. just you're just really not actually doing anything but in some ways, building a I warehouse say, inside a warehouse inside a warehouse. Exactly, but in some ways, I do feel like my favorite Kaufman movies are the ones where he does have creative partners, and you know, you can obviously adaptation very much Kaufman film. But Spike Jones is a an, a really good director that has Essen to work he's with He's an essential collaborator. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. and he has strong voice, as we can see, because he, I mean, he did very very good, very successful movies with Kaufman, but he also worked without him and also had great ideas and, and, and did great movies on his Want own. a screenplay Oscar of his own. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Her? So, Her. Yes. I don't know. In some ways, I do think that him collaborating is when he's at his best. And Charlie in the character, it, sorry, Charlie in the movie, fictional Charlie, in some ways needs that, needs that collaboration by uh, with Donald to bring the movie to some sort of end because he's written himself into a corner at one point, which is when his Uroboros. crisis. Is, yeah, when exactly, which is when his crisis is at its 
highest point because he just doesn't he hasn't told a story he's just been self-deprecating for two hours and and then thinking about the writing process and talking about himself and you know as he self itself aggrandizing it it's uh, it's egocentric or whatever he says and it's narcissistic so does, it's solipsistic exactly it's he pathetic. needs he needs that collaboration to bring the movie to a conclusion both fictionally and in real life so yes. I think there's always a balance to be struck, yeah. and I think Kaufman, it, to some extent, agrees with that. Well, I want to come back to him needing an ending, because that's later in the outline, but real quick, something you said at the start of that long spiel was about how you think that Charlie Kaufman might be jealous of writers like Donald Kaufman, and, I mean, he, he says in the movie that, like, the Charlie Kaufman character says to Donald, I, I envy you, and... Yeah. He does, you know, in the, you know, the profound life lesson scene of the movie, which again, we'll get to in a second. Um, he, but he envies his obliviousness, but then learns he's not actually that oblivious or maybe not as oblivious as he first appears. He, he knows more, he, he's more self-aware than he might, you might first assume. Um, so you talked also, Hugo, about, uh, the ending and how, uh, Charlie Coffin had to find his ending. Um. This movie takes a very fun but very dramatic turn uh, about mm, 40 minutes left, 30 minutes left. Um, uh, it's it's different tonally. It's different narratively. Uh, it's it's a real third act. So what did you guys uh, make of the third act just in general? Grizz, what do you got? So we're referring to everything that takes place in Florida or including Robert McKee's, you know, I think speech. so what happened so okay there's there's a there's a time when yes so charlie kaufman goes to talk to robert mckee and robert mckee says uh that's not a story you need to go back and add the drama and then he says the last act makes a film you can have flaws problems but dazzle them in the end and you've got a hit so go find your ending and then then charlie flies his brother donald to new york and donald reads his script and then charlie says how would the great donald end the script and i think from that point on that's the it's third act. <laughs> a, a script by Donald Kaufman, basically, yeah. quote unquote. So, for, so basically, yeah, your thing. Basically, uh, finding the finding out that LaRoche and Orlean are having an affair, and everything that you know continues on from that point. What do you What do you think of all that stuff? Well, I mean, it's certainly that's where it, when it becomes a thriller, right? <laughs> they yeah. they fly, they get stuck, you know, uh, in in their car, and you know, they a lot of kind of tropey aspects there, like you know, peeking through the window, getting caught peeking through. Uh, LaRoche's window while he, you know, he and or, uh, Susan Orlean are doing orchid drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, each other, and each other. Uh, yeah. so I didn't notice this. I didn't notice to this most recent watch. This is produced by Jonathan Demme. Jonathan Demme is a producer on this movie. And like okay. that sequence was so like yeah. sounds the Lambsy as he's going through mm-hmm. the greenhouse. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, Demme's, Demme's on Demme, this. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, so, uh, it does become fun and it does add a level of excitement that, the movie didn't have before, which I think is again, exactly what the point is here. So, <laughs> uh, which is also fun because again, because not only are you trying to enjoy the movie, but you're also like still thinking about the meta aspect of it all about Charlie writing this. You start to you know ask yourself those questions again. It's like, okay, what, what parts are we stretching of the story here? Uh, you know, and of course all of it is the answer. It's all made up, but <laughs> But it's fun and it's exciting, and the you get the heartfelt moments between Donald and Charlie that you you know didn't get in the rest of the movie. You don't get any emotional uh, you know real emotional attachment between them because Charlie is so 
you know, annoyed by his brother throughout the whole movie. And so we finally get in this ending some, like, you know, really good tug on your heartstrings moments. Uh, yes. What's up? So, what do you got, Josh? Hugo. Hugo, I want to ask your opinion too, but before I do that, I'm going to actually jump ahead in the outline. And I ask in the outline if you guys noticed when the movie calls it shot. Because it calls it shot several times with the ending. I already mentioned two of them. The first is Robert McKee saying, you have to go back and have the drama because you, you don't have an ending here. So basically you have to make it up. And then Charlie tell, says to Donald, how would Donald on the script? That's also calling it shot a second time. But it calls it shot in the opening scene when Charlie Kaufman has dinner, has lunch with Valerie Thomas, played by Tilda Swinton, when he's talking about adapting The Orchid Thief. He says, and I quote, um, well, before, he, before this quote, he says, I don't want to like make the orchids into poppies and make it a movie about drug running. And then he says, um, I'm quoting now, okay, but I'm saying it's like, I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases, you know, or characters, you know, learning profound life lessons or growing or come to like each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. You know, I mean, the book isn't like that and life isn't like that. You know, it just isn't. And I feel very strongly about this. Every single one of those things happens in the last half hour. Like, Everything in order said. as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> so... Again, he's he's calling a shot there. Yeah, um, and it's brilliant. It's it, it's so fun. And well, I gotta say that impression yeah. you just did of Nick Cage. I've seen Charlie it a lot. Hoffman. I've seen the movie oh, a lot. That was so yes. good, Josh. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so like so, this this third act is effectively sarcastic. It's a yeah. sarcastic third act, you know. But like, even knowing that. Even knowing that this is like the here's the stupid part of the movie, you idiots. Like that's basically what he's saying. Like it still works on here's me. Here's your like, garbage. Eat like, your garbage. Like I mean, the, again, the profound life lesson scene where like Charlie has this heart to heart moment with Donald, and he tells him he learns that he's not actually oblivious. You are what you love, not what loves you. Is the profound life lesson learned? Like that scene really works on me, even though yeah, I yeah, know it that it's 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 making it, fun of me for responding to it. And it you know, is, again, but at the same time, it's not because it, it's it's still him reconciliating himself with himself like there's a side of himself yes. that's like you know yeah maybe i don't have to be so up my own ass and i can i can <laughs> write something fun as well into right. this what into this larger picture um and we're also in hour 20 and so we can get to spoilers and everything but like donald's death scene really yeah. really it's really effective yeah. that really yeah. works on me it's like a really really sad scene in that that character doesn't exist. He's not a real person. And but, he got you know. he got me with a twist. You know, a, a classic yeah. you, know, you know thriller you know trope twist where he gets shot and you think that's the moment that that Donald's gonna die. But no, he's alive only to get thrown through a windshield, just like LaRoche's you know family uh, earlier mm-hmm. in the movie. Uh, and, and and you get you it gets you it gets you right in the in the gut. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just really remarkable that again the the whole final thirty minutes again. Is sarcastic, and it still like it still works. Like I don't know, it worked. Hugo, what do you got on the last uh, last act? There's also just an, on a very basic level something so almost whimsical about two Nick Cages running through like a a, a swamp with with Meryl Streep, Streep, yeah, with Meryl Streep with a shotgun chasing after witnessing them, like, Chris Cooper just... get killed by an alligator. <laughs> yeah, there's just like there's yeah, it's great. It it. The movie manages to have its cake and eat it too, where it's sarcastic. It really does, yeah. But at the same time, it's so well made that it, like, it could be if that was the movie, it would still be a good movie. And it, yeah, it it just elevates it because it, it it manages to comment on it while also making something cool with it. 
That's what I was gonna say. Like, it, like we keep saying it's sarcastic, but I, I think somehow it's both. That it yeah, is sarcastic, exactly. but that also Charlie completely loves this scene. Like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm sure that real life Charlie Kaufman enjoys this this part of the movie. <laughs> well, the movie ends with him, vo- his voiceover saying, "Like, this is good. I like this about his own script that he's right. finishing." Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. And then Charlie drives away. <laughs> yeah, this is good. I like this. Yeah. And he takes his profound life lessons and tells Kara uh, Seymour that he loves her, or whatever the actress's name is, the, the violin player in this. Yeah. Good movie. Uh, good well, movie. we covered the outline. Any, <laughs> any, any, any final thoughts besides me saying good movie about adaptation? No. Really good movie. Um, I do have we should see it sooner. We, yeah. We do always, I, yeah, I, I, I do too, yeah. We do always focus on first shots of movies, but I want to focus mm-hmm. on the very ending of the movie here where we get the flowers on the street and the, yeah. the time lapse of the flowers, which is, again, what Charlie said he was setting out to do, was to make And Happy Together playing, yeah. At, with, about flowers, but he's got you know, Happy Together, which is what Donald wanted oh, yeah, yeah. in the movie yeah. the whole mm-hmm. time. Uh, and we get both married perfectly. That this is you know, the, Right in this last shot, they're showing you the miracle that, of flowers, along with the you know, whimsical Hollywood... You know, song ending. It's freaking yeah. brilliant. <laughs> also, yes. one one final small thing that I noticed, like about like forty five minutes into the movie, he just he's at the height of his crisis, and he he takes his tape recorder and he's like, "Okay, we open on the beginning of time, and then we see the whole evolution of the human series, and then we go from the atom, and then it's it's, and then finally there's humans and civilization in New York, movie opens. and the late, and boom, movie opens." And when I realized that was the the way the actual that's how movie the movie started, opened, yes. that was like, yes. oh yes, that's great, that's genius. I love that. Again, I'm I'm pretty sure that everything that he writes, anything that he narrates himself writing, it, as he's trying to break the screenplay, actually happens in the movie at some point. Whether it be opening on the Orchid Hunter with dysentery, or opening on Charlie Kaufman himself, or LaRoche in the van, like all you, we see all of that at some point. Like that is in the script that he ends up and ultimately it, making in this and movie. And it's it's great because the moment he starts using the tape recorder is the moment you start as an audience member start realizing what the movie actually is and that the yes. movie is writing itself as it goes. We open on Charlie Kaufman, fat yeah. Bald. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird because Charlie Kaufman's actually a pretty skinny guy yeah, in real he's life. Not fat. So I don't know. No. And also, Nick Nick Cage wore a fat suit for this, by the way. He's also yeah, not he does, bald. definitely doesn't see himself in, a, in the best way. Um, he has a very, uh, I don't know, miserable image of himself. But yes. I, I think every everyone who's ever had to write something that wasn't their choice. Uh, like you haven't directly chosen to write this can relate to that feeling of like I just I'm an imposter I can't do this this is I'm a, just a lazy piece of shit I'm a fake we really got to get Hugo out of college yes yeah, yeah. this to me this movie was a just like live I, I read this in my letterbox review it's like live action how did they get this live action footage of me writing literally any university assignment um, and just having a mental breakdown um, yeah so um. Well, as someone who has written his fair share of screenplays, I relate an awful lot to the Charlie Kaufman's struggle that he has. And I just want to quote, say a direct quote from the movie, one of my favorite lines, when he sits down at the typewriter, to begin, to begin, how to start, I'm hungry, I should get coffee. <laughs> Maybe I should write something first and reward myself with coffee. Coffee and a muffin. Okay, so I need to establish the themes. Maybe banana nut. 
That's a good muffin. <laughs> That's, just... <laughs> That's great. That's great. I don't know what to tell you. If you don't like that, I don't know what to tell you. I got I got nothing for you if you don't like that stuff. Um, yeah, final thoughts up for me, I guess, like, I, I do think my eyes kind of glaze over a little bit in the third act, but, like, you know, when he's approaching the greenhouse and all, all that stuff, but again, like, uh, you know, some of Meryl Streep, my favorite acting from Meryl Streep is in this sequence, uh, the Donald death sequence really, really works for me, the ending really works for me, the profound life lessons, again, really works for me, even knowing I'm being pandered to. It's also like, I mean, your eyes glaze over, but maybe it's because you've seen the movie so many times. I have so seen the movie so many times. what's happening, but... I get for me it was like oh this is a nice change of pace and yeah. I'm, I'm wondering how it all, it's going to fit in the overall theme of the movie and the fact that it does makes it even better. This movie is also another kind of movie that I love in that it is a movie that it is almost as much fun talking about it with other people yes. as it is watching it itself. Uh which Absolutely. Yes. That's uh you know not exactly like it you know this isn't the only movie that's ever done that. Because we've talked about a lot of movies that do that on this show, but but I it does earn points with me. And as we've been discussing it, my opinion of the movie has continued upward, just because I'm enjoying the conversation so much. Yeah, man. <laughs> good note to end on, possibly. Should we rank it now? Let's rank now it. We've established it's a good movie and it's a good movie to talk about. Okay. Uh, where is my ranking? Okay. Uh. So you, <laughs> surprisingly, maybe I should rethink where I'm putting this because like we put our tentative rankings in the outline, and you guys both have it higher than me. So maybe That's I should rethink where I have it. That's interesting. And so uh, when we started the episode, higher. when we started recording the episode, I had it uh, below Jackie Brown at uh-huh. number twenty three, and then uh-huh. about halfway through the episode, I was like, "No, Josh is right. Right, you know, I, I put it right where Josh has it. And I'll let Josh say where he has it, his in a second. And then, as I said, like I just continued to, to think, like, yeah, you know what? This is this is really special. I like this. I like this. It's better than this. And now I have it where I have it at uh, number nineteen, just after John Wick, which I think I'm is, moving mine up a little bit. I, I think is something. There's something ironic about me putting this movie directly behind John Wick, a movie yeah, that that's <laughs> exactly the, what, the third act of the adaptation. <laughs> Uh, John Wick's a good movie. I'm not. I'm not bad mouthing at all. Okay, so yeah. you have it at you have it at number nineteen behind. Uh, so fifteen through nineteen is your name. The wind rises. Scream. John Wick. Grizz puts adaptation. Uh, Hugo, where do you have it? So I guess have um, I have it the highest. Um, you do. Yeah. I I don't know. First time watching it, and it made a really good impression of me and I on me, and I think it's a movie that on a rewatch would get even better. So because you would notice all the tiny little things that maybe it was hinting at. Here and there, so I would have it quite high on our list at number twelve. Uh, so just above just Citizen above Kane, Citizen Kane. <laughs> and uh, yeah, below the Memories of Murder. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I I really really had a great time with this movie, and and again talking about it just makes it uh, exponentially better. I think. Yeah, um, so you have it at twelve. This is this is tough for me because like there there's like a a run of movies on our list that like. Are, are higher than I would I would put them. Um, yeah, so, like, I, I struggle to put this ahead of Network, but at the same time, if I can get past Network, then, like, it jumps up several slots because the movie's right ahead of Network. I think um, it's better than, but... Um, just I'll, I'll just put it behind Network. So I'm putting it at 20. So I have the lowest of the three of us, which is funny. Um, so, hold on, I have, I have to do some math here real, real quick. So we have... Hugo has it at 12. 
Grizz has it at 19. 19. I have it at 20 divided by 3. Average out to 17. So do we put it exactly 17? Does it go above or below Scream then? Wow. Uh, Both movies play with movie tropes in excellent ways. I think I'm going to give the edge to Adaptation. Yeah, me too. I agree. I'm also giving the edge to Adaptation. So I'm going to put it at 17. Behind the Wind Rises, ahead of my beloved Scream. Uh, this is the type of movie Katie. that will end up higher in in the re-ranking for sure. Yeah, because we, when we do the I re-ranking, agree. Josh is going to put it where he actually wants it. <laughs> yep. Well, this is this is very much a, a, a foundational text for me. Uh, in terms of when I when I saw it, and I, I watched it an awful lot in my uh, late teens, early twenties, when I was like again getting into movies. So um, it will be higher for me. When I just think that sure. Josh has so many foundational texts that it's like basically he's not a that many. He's a pyramid because the base is just so many foundational many. texts. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I love this movie. I'm really glad that you guys seem to like it too. Um, and I think this was one of our better episodes, personally. I, I, I do think this was yeah. a very, very fun episode. And yes. I'm, I'm really happy uh, that some people uh, tuned in to watch it live. And if you're watching it yes. on YouTube or listening in on the podcast, good for you. You picked a great one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They're not all this good. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Uh, to wrap up, oh, I guess, uh, Hugo, what do we, what do we watch next week? Did you ever even decide what we'll do what so next week? next week, we are doing sort of a look back at 2021 and a look forward right. at 2022. So we're going to sort of, each of us is going to sort of briefly talk about our top three movies of the year, uh, that passed and, uh, our top three most anticipated movies for 2022, even though like, we'll try to, you know, maybe we'll include movies that potentially are 2022, even though they're not. Definitely 2022. To the best it's of our a, knowledge. And yeah, it's, a weird, include, it's a weird moment in movies, unfortunately. We're also include, so we never know when stuff is going to come out. I'm sorry, I keep talking over you. Sorry, Hugo. No, 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 go ahead. We're also going to include the movies that we, in our episode last year, where we did our most anticipated movies of 2021. We're oh, yeah, yeah. look back at the movies we selected for that and, you know, see... See how they panned out. See how yeah, they actually panned out for well, us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you I they like, panned out great for me. So. Yeah, I need, I, need to, I need to, like... I need to revisit what I actually said, but based on my memory of what I said, I think I yeah, called out some doozies, it. and they ended up uh, really paying off, I think. So we'll see. Uh, Hugo, where can people find you on the on the internet? You can find me at Hugo underscore Pinai on uh, Twitter, and you can find me at Hugo Pinai on Letterboxd. And uh, you can listen to Large Popcorn uh, Movie Club, which is a monthly thing that I'm going to be on. Uh, this month, we're talking about Thirst, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show. So if you happen to... Uh, Want to talk about weird Korean priest vampires? Uh, you know where to go. Grizz. You can find me right here on twitch.tv slash goodgamegrizz. Uh, you can also uh, find me on Twitter at goodgamegrizz and Letterbox at goodgamegrizz. But I also wanted to shout out that I, I've been doing a show with my friend Jennifer Van Damsel uh, on her Twitch channel. And it also it's also put on her YouTube. It's called If You Ask Me, where uh, we talk about... Movies, TV shows, comic books, just every, all the media we're consuming and, uh, you know, giving them reviews and ratings and all that stuff. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and you should also definitely follow Jennifer Van Damsel on, on Twitch and Twitter as well. So you can find out about, about the episodes. 
Don't give out the socials of non-podcast hosts, Grizz. We just we talked about that. No, I'm kidding. Um, go ahead and follow <laughs> her. I'm, I'm kidding. Sorry. Um, you can find me on Twitter, I guess, at the Sleep Josh B. Uh, YouTube moves so can you whatever. Uh, follow the podcast at RTF underscore Pod. I think last week we said at RTF Pod, and we are not at RTF Pod. We are at RTF underscore Pod. So. I'm sure at RTF Pod just got thousands of new followers because we shouted them out and they were trying to and follow they us. Gonna, they are they going to thank us yeah. for that? No, of course no, not. No, obviously not. Um, <laughs> yeah, so follow us places. Watch Adaptation if you haven't already. We just spoiled all of it for you. And then tune in again next week for another exciting episode of Remember the Film. Bye, guys. <laughs>